um, between myself and Jacob, it's like get a couple of preachers up there to MC and you're in trouble, right? And uh, so we're starting a new series today. It's called The Book of Hebrews. So we're journeying uh, through the next four weeks through The Book of Hebrews. She's a superstar. I'm not going to say any more. You all know that. Welcome Adele Robinson. <laughs> wow. Well, ho- hello, everyone. Are we all okay? Good. Hello, everyone online as well. We're so glad you could join us. Well, such exciting news. Our new name and, you know, God goes before us, doesn't he? He parts the sea. He goes before us. So we're so excited for this new season. Now, today we're going to talk about the book of Hebrews. It's going to be good and we're going to learn from it what we can. But to kick us off, I just want you to turn your eyes to the screen. We're going to watch a clip, which is just going to give us an overview of the whole book. So we're off to a good start. Okay, so just check the screen out. The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God where they built the tabernacle where the priests offered sacrifices and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories and so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians. That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? 
In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that. Which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, this final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. 
So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages, they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. Wow, awesome. How good are them videos? Okay, so the book of Hebrews, such a fantastic book. And just like the clip said, what we don't know about the book is the authorship. So the, the person who wrote the book, that's still inconclusive. A lot of people have been suggested. So there's Barnabas, um, Luke, Priscilla, Apollos, but really only God knows. Um, the, his, there is connections in the book to the apostle Paul with a mention of Timothy and Italy. Um, so, it, so this book has been developed from the beliefs and the doctrine of the Apostle Paul and his eyewitness account of the risen Christ. That's why it's found, it, that's why it was accepted into the canon of scripture because of that eyewitness and why we, why we see it in our Bibles today. So the authorship is inconclusive. The audience, we're not really sure about the audience. Not sure exactly who they wa were or what province they lived in. Um, but but the, the common understanding is there was Jewish people who had converted to Christianity. So from Judaism to Christianity. Because the author does assume they have a thorough knowledge of um, Jewish history, um, Jewish culture, the Jewish symbols which identify Jewish people such as the Sabbath, circumcision, um, the temple and also then with its connections to the Apostle Paul it's, it's assumed that these people were prob most probably converted on one of his missions trips around Asia or Europe. So that's what we don't really know. What we do know, what is clear, and, and like the clip said, is the message of the book. It's very clear the author wants to get across the supremacy of Jesus Christ. These people are tempted to abandon the faith, so he wants to get across the absolute supremacy of who Jesus is. And that message runs through the whole book. And what also um, we come to see about the book is the style of writing that the author uses, so the structure of the book. It becomes quite clear as you read it, and what he does to emphasize his point of the superiority of Jesus is he'll use an exhortation, so an explanation and comparisons. That's often backed up with a warning, and then he'll go in, so an um, exposition, sorry, an explanation, 
backed up with a warning, and then what you'll see is he'll, he'll go into an exhortation, so an encouragement. So um, explanation, because of this and, and because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, we then should do this. And that's quite a common style of writing that you'll see in the Bible. Just a, a small example is in Romans when the uh, Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So because of what Jesus has done, we now should do this. Because we have that knowledge, we should do this. So um, explanation to encouragement. Um, because we need both, don't we? We need both in this Christian life. We can't just be told what to do all the time. You should do this. You should do that without any explanation behind it, without any knowledge behind it. Because the question arises, well, why? Why do I need to do this? Why am I expected to do this? And without the knowledge, we, don't, we won't get the conviction and we won't get the steadfastness to implement lasting change in our life. And the risk is we might also begin to rebel against the change. Because if we feel we're getting pushed into something or manipulated into something, then rebellion might stir up. But we can't just get knowledge to get knowledge. <laughs> have knowledge to have knowledge. We need the knowledge, but we also need to, to practically start implementing it into our lives. Now that we have Jesus in our life, our lives should start looking a little bit different. The way we act should start looking different. The way we think should start being different. The way we relate to others and see others should be different. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So things should start looking new and different in our life. Um, the Apostle Paul's life drastically changed when he met the risen Jesus. Have our lives started to look different since we come to Jesus? Because that's the aim. Okay, so we have an idea of the message and we have an idea of the structure of the book. And what I'd like to do this morning, very quickly, I'm going to talk quick because time's running out. I want to zoom right out and just take an overarching look of how this sort of explanation and exhortation plays out in chapters one and two and then three and four. Does that sound all right? Yeah, we're good? Okay. But first, before we do that, let's just take a little look at the background. Okay, so... We've got these Hebrew people, and they're in danger of, of abandoning their faith, of turning away from Jesus Christ. So how did that happen? What went wrong? Imagine for, with, with me um, for a moment, if you will. You're in the first century world, okay? You're in the synagogue, and you're, the Torah's being read, just like normal. You're listening to the Torah. And the Apostle Paul sweeps through the synagogue with this whole drastically new message of now you can um, gain righteousness with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that Yahweh, God himself, had come and atoned for the sins of his people, that no longer would the presence of God only be in the temple of Jerusalem, he would be within us. Can you imagine how mind-boggling that would have been to these Jewish people who had grew up with the, with the Torah and the, and the sacrifices and whatnot? It would have been life-changing, absolutely life-changing. Paul's preaching with a wisdom that they've never heard before. The Holy Spirit's confirming the message with signs and wonders are flying around, and it's fantastic. It's wonderful, and they experience God like they've never experienced him before. And they accept him. They accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
And things are fantastic for them for a while. It's exciting, it's new, there's a buzz. Um, you know, they're waiting for the immediate return of Christ Jesus. That was such a prominent belief in the first century church, the immediate return of Christ Jesus. Like they thought he was going to come the next day. So it's exciting, this hope, this anticipation. It's so new, it's so different. And then there's a wait. <laughs> then there's a wait. There's a perceived silence from God, maybe, and a wait a little bit longer. And not only that, things start to get difficult in the natural realm. Things start coming up against them. These trials, these pressures from the old circles, these persecution. They begin to question. They begin to doubt. Was this really real anyway? Jesus hasn't returned yet. He's not falling in line. He's not following the agenda. Is this even real? They begin to doubt. Maybe it would be easier if I just went back, if I just went back to the old way of doing things. So let's bring that into our present day, okay? We're in our Pentecostal church service on a Sunday. Woo! We're having a great time, amen? The preacher's preaching up a storm. <laughs> Signs and wonders are flying around everywhere. The presence of God is tangible, and it's amazing. And you give your life to Jesus Christ. And things are great for a while. You're meeting new people. Your life's taking a whole different direction. God's doing amazing things in your life. And then there's a bit of a wait, and a little bit more of a wait. And has God gone quiet on me? Where's God? He's not quite fitting into the agenda. He's not quite fitting in to the plan that I had for him. So is this even real? Is any of this real? And doubt gets him. Wouldn't it just be easier if I went back? This pressure, this persecution. I don't even know what God's doing. I don't know where he is. He's not following my plans. That's for sure. <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier if I just went back and forgot this whole thing? And it happens. it happens. It happens to us in some form or another. If it's not happened to you yet, you might experience it. It's in the Bible to show us that it happens. And this gives us the example. So what do we do? What do we do from this point? Lord, help us. What can we do? How does the author begin to address these Hebrew people? And this is chapter 1. He goes into his first exposition. And we'll read it in Hebrews 1, um, 1 to 5. He points them straight back to who Jesus is actually is who he is in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe the son is the radiance of God's glory the exact rep representation of his being the exact representation of God sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And then we just jump down to Hebrews 1 chapter 8. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. 
A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above the companies by anointing you with the oil of joy. He pointed them right back to who Jesus was. And sometimes when we hit these crises in our lives, when we're in the storms, we need to remember who Jesus is. We need to get our eyes back on him and remember who he is. The exact representation of the, be- the very being of God, the radiance of his glory. Lord of all creation who has provided purification for our sins, who is in all and through all, who holds all things together, who sustains all. This is who he is. The seriousness of who Jesus is and what it is we're tempted to walk away from. What it is we're tempted to turn our back on who Jesus is. And I think sadly sometimes in this culture that we're living in, in this materialism, consumer culture, sadly there's a risk that Jesus uh, can just sort of get seen as, as the way we can get blessings in our lives, the way we can get things, the way our lives can just be nicer. And I'm not saying he doesn't want that, but that can be all that's, that he's seen for sometimes. And we forget about his lordship. We forget that he is God. You know, he's not required to fit into our agendas, unfortunately. He is God and we are required to fit into his agenda. Because, you know, he is wisdom. And a lot of times, well, I know a lot of times my agenda isn't very wise. So praise God, he's God. He's wisdom. He sets the agenda and we need to fit in with that. And we need to get our eyes back on Jesus when this doubt When this temptation just to walk away comes in, we need to remember who he is, what he has done in our life, and what we're walking away from. It's so important. But the Hebrew people, it seems, had lost sight of this. They'd got their eyes off Jesus, off the supremacy of Jesus, and they got them back on the set themselves. They were in danger of of rejecting, of ignoring this great salvation that he offered, this peace, forgiveness, love. They were in danger of walking away from that. They thought they could go back to their old way of doing things. They, they thought they could go back to their old systems. But that system didn't exist any longer. It didn't exist any longer as a way to obtain life. That sacrificial system which they used to follow, their old way, that didn't exist any longer. Not now Jesus Christ had come and atoned for their sins and brought the new thing, the new way of doing it. He replaced the old with the new. They thought they could go back, but it wasn't there anymore. It wasn't there anymore. Jesus had come to replace the systems. And we see a glimpse of this in the Gospels in uh, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, when he's addressing the Jewish people who would know the Torah. So he's addressing the Jewish people, and we see a glimpse of how he's changing, how he's rewriting the Torah. When he says things like, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. You have heard it said, but now I'm telling you. You have heard it said, love your neighbors, hate your enemies. But now I'm telling you, um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's rewriting it. I know what you've heard said. I know it used to be that. But now I'm here and I'm telling you it's this way. And he's revealing who he is there. He's revealing who he is. Because who had the authority to change God's word except God himself? 
You know, Moses didn't come down from Mount Sinai and say, Jesus, you know, I've had a word from the Lord, but I'm telling you, let's do this. He didn't say that. The prophets never did that. I've had a vision from the Lord. This is what we need to do, but I'm telling you. Jesus could say that because Jesus was God and he had come and he had the authority to rewrite, rewrite the system, replace the old system with the new. He says in Hebrews 8, by calling this covenant new, Hebrew, yeah, Hebrews 8, 13, sorry, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Again, just the seriousness of this. We can't mess about with this. You know, we can't mess about with Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation. He's God and he's come and what he's, what he's done for us and the new covenant that he has bought. You know, he didn't come to present a casual alternative. He didn't come to, pr- to present an option B. He didn't come to say, well, if you're not happy with that, you can accept me and, and what I offer. Or you can come and go. Or either way, all good, up to you, but everything's going to work out. He didn't say that. He said, I know what you've heard said. I know it used to be that, but now I'm here, I've come, and I'm saying I am the only way, the only truth, the only life, and all who come to the Father must now come through me. I am the narrow gate, and there is now no other name under heaven given to mankind that which we can be saved. The seriousness of it. So how then shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And this is what brings us into our first warning of Hebrews 2, 2 to 3. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received is just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. How shall we escape? The Hebrew people were deceived. They were disillusioned. They thought they could go back and obtain life, back to their old way of doing things. But there was nothing to go back to. Only devastating eternal consequences. When things get tough in our lives, when the storms come, when Jesus just isn't quite falling into line, We've got trials, and we start to lose sight of him. We start to look to ourselves, and we're tempted to go back to our own ways. We're tempted to go back to our own life. We just need to stop for a minute and say, what am I going back to? What is it I am going back to? There is no true life there, no true peace, no true fulfillment in that old way of life. What is it I'm going back to? The disciple Peter come to an understanding of this in John 6 when um, Jesus just delivers quite a hard teaching and a lot of people walk away. And he says to his disciples, oh, are you, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to turn your backs? Um, and the apostle Peter says, um, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What am I going back to if I turn away from this so great a salvation? Who am I turning my back on and where am I going to? There's nothing there. It's like the apple in the garden. It's tempting. It looks good. But it leads just to death and destruction with huge eternal consequences. 
Okay, well, what do we do, Lord? Help us. We need help. What can we do when we struggle in, the, in, in these storms of life? Well, we get to our first exhortation in chapter 2. And he says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We need to listen. We need to listen to the Word of God. We need to listen intently to what we're hearing, to engage with it and keep hearing it and keep hearing it. And don't get complacent with it. It's so easy to do. I know a lot of time at church we hear a lot of the same things. You know, and it can, we can kind of just tune out to it because we think, well, well, we've heard that bit before. We've heard that bit before. But maybe there's a reason we need to keep hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing until it sinks down deep in us and it becomes the very fiber of what we are. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But are we listening? Are we listening? And are we letting this word sink deep into us? Proverbs 4.20 says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. And Psalms 12.6, Passion Translation says, For every word God speaks is sure and every promise is pure. His truth is, is tested, found to be flawless and ever faithful. It is as pure as silver, refined seven times in a crubial of clay. <laughs> don't know if I pronounced that right. Hear and anchor your life in the pure, solid word of God. We have to listen. We have to be intentional to listen to his word. You know, do you doubt God loves you? He tasted death for you so you could go free. He left glory to a cradle in the dirt so he could make an everlasting atonement for your sins, so he could draw you to him. Listen to what is being said. Listen carefully. Do you doubt there's a heaven to lose and a hell to gain? How should we, ignore, how should we escape if we ignore such great a salvation? Well, the answer is we can't. And we need to listen carefully to what is being said. You know, the danger of drifting is it's slow. It's, it's, it happens when we're passive. It happens when we're not fighting against it when we're not actively fighting against it the author says in chapter 5 a bit later on to the Hebrew people you're no longer trying to understand what is even being said to you they just yeah they didn't want to know anymore they got passive they got complacent and they were drifting away and I know the disappointments and the trials of life can scream so loudly at us sometimes I know that but we have to fight. We have to make effort that, so that the voice of Jesus Christ and his word is louder in our heads and our hearts than the trials and the disappointments of life. We have to. There's an effort on our part. You know, God's word has often been compared to a lighthouse. It's beacon of light for us. And I looked up what a lighthouse was for. His two main purposes are to serve as a navigational aid and to warn the boats of dangerous waters. God has given us his word to keep us safe, to protect us, to guide us gently into heaven's harbor. Are we listening to his words? Are we paying attention? Are we taking them seriously? Because if not, we're going to find ourselves in dangerous waters. And then we get to our next major um, exposition in chapter 3. And this time, the writer is comparing Jesus to the superiority of Moses. And he says in Hebrews 3, 2, 4, 
He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. You know, Moses was the servant in God's house, but Jesus was the builder of the house and the overseer of the house. So Moses was the one um, through whom God established his spiritual house. We get the tabernacle and the priesthood. um, And you read about that in Exodus, how that was set up. And Moses was faithful to that. Moses was was a faithful was faithful to what God had entrusted him. He was a model of faith for us. But it was Jesus who was behind that. It was Jesus who was um, overseeing that and the builder of that. So what he has now come to do and give us should, as, should be bestowed on it far much greater honor and glory to that which was brought by Moses. Because the things of Moses were only a type and a shadow to the real thing had come. And now Jesus had come, the real thing. And why is the author comparing him to Moses? Why is he saying this? Because remember, they were Jewish people he was talking to. Okay, so they would have had a complete understanding of who Moses was, what he had done in the wilderness. I mean, they they would have been brought up as children on, on these stories. It would have just been ingrained in them. They would have known about the tabernacle, the priesthood, and they would have also known about how the children of Israel rebelled in the wilderness, rebelled against Moses. And these were the very people then who were just about to rebel against Jesus Christ himself, the real thing. And he's making this comparison to say, they rebelled about what was brought in through Moses and by the blood of animals, but you are just about to rebel against what God himself has established and confirmed with his blood. And how much more severely do you think someone needs to be punished if they trample the Son of God underfoot? If they treat a holy thing as unholy? He's warning them. He's saying, guys, look, this is serious. So again, Lord, help us. What can we do? We need your help. And he brings us in to another exhortation, chapter 3. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as, they, as you, they, you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. But for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my way, so I declare a note in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Israel trusted God to bring them out of Egypt. Israel trusted God for their salvation. But they stopped trusting him on the way to the promised land. They were saved. We get saved. And then we stop trusting God to care for us. We stop trusting God to look after us. And the result was their hearts grew hard. Their hearts grew hard and cold towards him, turning them away from the living God. And they were unable to enter the rest. They were unable to enter the promised land. Now we read these Hebrew people are on that same knife edge. They're right there on that knife edge. And perhaps today we find ourselves on that same knife edge. Unbelief, the Bible says, will harden your heart towards God. It desensitizes you from the presence of God. His words cannot be planted into our hearts. They can't take root and grow to produce new life in us. 
It causes rebellion because we're not grounded. We're not planted. And it stops us from entering into his rest. It stops us from entering into his peace. A lot of the times, I know from my own experience, we have so much strife and confusion and anxiety in our mind because we forget to enter into the rest that God has provided, into his peace. Jesus says, I come to give you my peace. I've come to give you my peace, my peace I leave with you. Have we taken his peace? Have we entered the rest? And the physical land, the the physical rest that the um, children of Israel were being offered, that again was only a type and a shadow, an example of things to come. Today, we are being offered a much more greater rest. We are being offered a spiritual rest in Jesus Christ to entrust our lives to God that he can faithfully take care of us. We are being offered a much greater rest. Hebrews 4.2 says, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, right now, whatever situation you're facing, are you, have you entered his rest? Are you fully believing God can take care of this situation? Is your faith fully in him to care for you? Therefore, do you have peace about the situation you're facing? Or are you, are you still anxious? Are you still worried about it? Have you still not entered the faith rest that God can take care of whatever it is I am facing? He says in Matthew, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. You know, he cares about every hair on your head. You can trust Jesus with your life. But there's such an urgency about the position of our hearts towards him. We have to guard our hearts for unbelief. Hebrews 4.9 says, there, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The, the children of Israel, they didn't have faith in God. They didn't believe he could care for them, so they never entered the rest. The Hebrews were in danger of ignoring this rest. So let us make sure we make every effort to enter his rest, this faith rest that God can take care of me. God can take care of whatever it is that I might be facing. So I can be at peace. And then as we come to the end of verse 4, the author gives us a little bit more help. It's always good, isn't it? We need help. The antidote for an unbelieving heart. He says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give an account. You know, we might be able to fool one another that we're doing okay. (laughs) We might be able to fool man, but God sees everything. God sees our hearts. The Word of God exposes what's in our hearts. It reveals what shouldn't be in there and what we need to get out. It lays all things bare. But it's also the hammer to smash unbelief. It's the purifying fire and the cleansing water, the self-producing seed that is planted and produces new life in us. And you know, it can be painful when we're being exposed. It can be painful when 
the cutting away and the laying bare is happening. <laughs> but you know, ground has to be plowed. Tough ground has to be plowed. It has to be made soft so new seed can be planted and new life can grow. So we need to listen carefully to his words. We need to allow them to sink deeply in us. Keep your heart soft and open towards God and allow him to continue to do the work that he's begun in you because we're all a work in progress, aren't we? We're all a work in progress. So continue to let God do his work in you. And you know, maybe the book of Hebrews is speaking to you today. Maybe you've begun to get your eyes off Jesus. You've begun to drift away and your heart's you can feel I've just become cold to the things of God. You're not interested. You come desensitized to his presence. Well, God is meeting you today through the words in his book, in the book of Hebrews. He's drawing you back to him today. He's drawing, he's turning your hearts back to him today. He's saying, look at me. Look at me. Remember who I am. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done for you. Remember what you've got to lose. Listen to my words. Pay attention. Don't harden your hearts towards me. Keep believing in me. I know things get hard, but keep believing that I can care for you and I can bring you through to the other side in victory. Keep believing me. Don't turn your hearts away from me because I love you too much. And the consequences are just far too great. So we need to keep believing God. Amen? Amen. And maybe some of you have not made that decision for Jesus yet. If you're online and you've not made that decision to turn your hearts towards God, then I just want to give you all the chance today. If we can just bow our heads and, and say this prayer. And if you want to make that decision to, to turn towards Jesus today, then please repeat this prayer after me. And why don't we just all repeat it together, church? Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins today, my old ways, and I want to trust you as Lord and Savior of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, if you have prayed that prayer for the first time, if you're online and you've prayed that prayer for the first time, then please let your host know because we just want to get in touch with you. We want to give you some resources and we want to help you on that journey. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Amen.